0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: So last week I started talking about wise mindfulness as an aspect of the Eightfold Path. Mindfulness, um, the Eightfold Path being, I like to think of them as the set of practices that the Buddha offered us uh, to, help, to help us become happier, essentially. Like, I, we can look at it that way. They're, they're tools, they're explorations of our experience, um, explorations of our, uh, the ways our mind, mind and bodies work, um, explorations of our relationships with other people, um, exploration with our uh, views of how the world works. And with those tools, those practices, the Buddha uh, offered us a pathway towards happiness. And so I've started talking about mindfulness in the Eightfold Path last week, wise mindfulness. And mindfulness, the, the, the use of the wise with it, um, this brings in the notion that there is some um, perspective perhaps that we need to join with mindfulness, that just simply being aware of experience may not be quite enough. And in fact, there are a few places in the texts, in the Buddhist texts, where he speaks of wrong mindfulness, that it's possible you know, that mindfulness can be kind of directed in, uh, in a way that is not so helpful for us. And that instruction, uh, that teaching about what wrong mindfulness is, is found within the context of um, a teaching on what is called the wrong eightfold path, which begins with a perspective. I mean, the the eightfold path begins with a wise view, which is the set of uh, perspectives that we can bring to our experience that helps us to kind of shift our direction. Our normal way of living our lives kind of keeps us hooked into patterns and habits that keep us struggling. You know, the the ways that we relate to the world just as human beings, not just in this culture, but as human beings. You know, one of the key ways that we relate to the world is that, you know, I need to get what I want. I need to arrange my world so that it will be the way that feels good to me. And that will be where happiness lies. And the Buddha kind of unveiled the... uh, Error of that view, and that the that perspective of getting what I want is actually trying to rely on our ability to control the environment, to control our experience. To uh, it, it's putting our our um, it's relying on things outside of us for our happiness. It's pinning our hopes for happiness on things that are not very reliable. And that's what the Buddha pointed out. He said, you know, this isn't... Yeah, it creates some happiness for a little while to do that, to arrange your world to be the way you'd like it to be. Yes, that does create some happiness. But it's not very reliable. And it's not a mistake when that falls apart. So that, you know, we often feel like when things fall apart, it's like, well, what have I done wrong? You know, how did I... How did I mess this up, rather than it being just the natural circumstances that when we put things together, construct something, it naturally falls apart. So the Buddha kind of exposed that error of our uh, um, understanding of how happiness lies. And in, that's the first aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path, is this kind of shift of perspective and so the uh, the wrong eightfold path is where you know we are looking for happiness in other directions we're looking we're essentially looking for happiness in constructing experiences and conditions and if our path in life is headed from that view that perspective of that's how happiness will be found it will kind of keep us hooked in that mode of constructing and and holding on to things that we've constructed, and probably feeling frustrated, uh, feeling um, put upon, feeling like we've failed, if and when those constructed things fall apart. And so the Buddha talked about the Wrong Eightfold Path essentially being the life we live motivated by this wrong understanding or this confused understanding of where happiness can be found. And so all of the um, notions of the Eightfold Path, of understanding of what our intentions are, of how we engage with our relationships and how we engage with, with our effort and our, where we direct our attention, all of that can be headed off in, in this direction that is not so helpful for us and so that's where the wrong eightfold path is uh, how the, how the wrong eightfold path is described and so wrong mindfulness in the text is defined in terms of basically having this incorrect or unclear or confused understanding of where happiness can be found and that mindfulness in that context is not going to do, do much to make us truly happy It'll you know, kind of keep us hooked on that cycle of, well, how can I arrange the world? I mean, just, just think about you know, what, mindfulness, what mindfulness is. And there are different opinions about this. I mean, the, the, um, some people teach, and in fact, the, the commentaries on the suttas teach that there's no such thing as wrong mindfulness, you know, that all mindfulness is wholesome, that it's, it's going to head us in the right direction. The, the Buddha himself apparently didn't say that. You know, he, he said, you know, this mindfulness. My understanding is the Buddha said this is a capacity of our minds. It's just a very simple self-reflective capacity. It helps us to know what's happening while it's happening. It's this ability to recognize ourselves, and that ability can be directed in ways that will help us and in ways that might not help us. And so, just as a, an example. Um, you know, Just imagine uh, a thief who is has broken into someone's house and they're moving very carefully uh, you know, so as not to wake the people in the house, moving very carefully and very consciously to take these things from the house. And so and to some extent there's awareness. There's awareness of what they're doing. There's awareness of... Of their body, there's awareness of their movement, but it's directed in a way that is not so wholesome. So, you know, some people would say that's not mindfulness. You know, that that's not what the Buddha meant by mindfulness. And I would say it's definitely not what the Buddha meant by wise mindfulness. It's not the mindfulness of the Eightfold Path. So, most of the places in the in the texts where the Buddha uses mindfulness, he means wise mindfulness. And so this is bringing uh, the aspect of some kind of wisdom together with mindfulness. This perspective, a a wise perspective on what is helpful for us. What are the the helpful uh, directions to incline our attention? And what's maybe not so helpful? So in terms of the um, uh, definition of what wise mindfulness is, he defines it as this, um, the, the clearest definition is that it is the mindfulness of these four um, aspects or frames of reference of experience. And he, he points to four, four areas that we can explore our experience. And this, he, he says, you know, you explore your experience from these perspectives, this will be very helpful for you. And they're very broad categories, everything in our experience can be it's like whatever happens in our experience it's not that it's it's not that we're saying we should pay attention to some things and not pay attention to other things with wise mindfulness but what he's saying is there's a particular way to pay attention to whatever's happening in our experience that will be helpful to us And so these four foundations of mindfulness offer us four perspectives through which we can view whatever's happening to us and understand it in this way that will support our happiness. And so he offers these four frames of reference. I I like that translation. That's Thanissaro Bhikkhu's translation of the Satipatthana. That's the name of the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness meditation, his primary instructions to us on how to be mindful come in this discourse called the Satipatthana Sutta. The Satipatthana um, often is translated as the foundations of mindfulness. And there are four foundations of mindfulness. Or uh, Thanissaro Bhikkhu uses this frames of reference, which I like because it it offers this perspective that it's not it's not that we're saying these things are good to pay attention to and these things are not good to pay attention to, but saying that this is the frame of reference through which we want to look at what is happening to us. And so everything in our experience, whatever's happening in our experience, we can find a place for that within these four foundations of mindfulness and a perspective that will help us to use that experience to free our minds to move us towards happiness. And so like I said in the guided meditation, you know, the sound of the jackhammer is a perfectly fine object to be mindful of. You know, it really doesn't matter. It's how we pay attention that's more important. And so I look at the four foundations of mindfulness as being an encouragement to pay attention in a particular way. So the four foundations are the body, Feeling whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, the mind uh, noticing kind of the climate or tone or uh, filters or you know just what's happening in our mind in a very broad way, and then the fourth one is um, um, it's a, it's a little bit harder to describe in a simple sentence, but it's it's mindfulness of experience or dhammas uh, from the perspective of the Buddhist teaching. And so this is, this is really where the wisdom of the Buddha comes into the four foundations. He says, you know, look at your experience through the perspective of the hindrances. Are the hindrances present or not present? You know, is greed present or not present? Any moment of experience, any, any moment of experience, greed will either be present or not present you can look at everything that happens to you just through that one lens. And so this is is a perspective he offers. Look at this, look at experience through this perspective. Is greed present or not? Is aversion present or not? Is concentration present or not? So that, and then some other perspectives. He suggests looking at our experience through the perspective of the Four Noble Truths. Is suffering present? Is the cause of suffering present? Is craving present? Is freedom from suffering present? Or are the the practices or the qualities of mind that support freedom present? So he offers some different perspectives on our uh, experience in this fourth foundation. Today I'd like to explore uh, in some more detail because last time I talked very generally, kind of as a broad brush overview about all four foundations and how they kind of uh, fit together and Help us in our lives. Today, I'd like to explore mindfulness of the body and what the Buddha had to say about it. So, you know, looking at actually what the Buddha spoke about mindfulness of the body. This is his first foundation. This is the first perspective that he offers us from which to pay attention to our experience. And I've spent some time thinking about why. Why did he start with the body? And it seems Perhaps it seems obvious in a way, and, and it feels kind of clear to me that it's a good idea to start with the body because it's some of our most obvious experience. And we often get caught around what happens in our bodies. You know, we like certain things. We don't like other things. You know, we, we, um, we have a lot of judgment and views and opinions about what happens in our body. And so the Buddhists who just explore the body itself, what is the body? I also think he started with this first, found, with this as his first foundation, because um, you know it's a, it's a, it's an easier place in a way to start to pay attention. You know, that it's it can become more clear to us if you're given specific directions. You know, for instance, the first practice that he suggests in mindfulness of the body is to pay attention to your breathing. You know, so, this is something we all can do just in a simple way, knowing our breathing. And this practice in particular helps to calm us down. It helps to settle our minds down. And so mindfulness of the body, whether of breathing or using some of these other practices, which I'll explore with you in a, in a few moments, um, offers some tools to help our minds settle down. If we turn our attention to what's happening in our body, it's kind of like, well, there's this uh, analogy I sometimes use um, about a way to explore our meditation practice, and that's like, you know, you have a, if you have a jar of muddy water, you know, you can um, allow it to settle down you know, you, by just putting it on the shelf and letting it sit there. And so, if you sit in meditation and kind of have the sense of your body being the container and the uh, experiences of the body, you know, all the, vibra- the energy of the body, the feelings in the body, the, all the various sensations in the body being like that muddy water, you know, if you just allow those experiences to be in the stillness of the body, in the stillness of meditation, they tend to settle down. And so the the attention to the body is grounding for us. It, It supports a settling not only of mental energy but of physical energy. And so this helps us to let go of kind of the ways that our mind habitually uh, gets lost, stirs itself up, you know, pulls itself into past and future. So the, having something kind of gross, uh, obvious to pay attention to helps us recognize, oh, here I am. I, this is, again, as I kind of said in the guided meditation, if you're paying attention to the body, mind and body are together in the present moment. And that's a very good place to begin practicing mindfulness is where you can know that mind and body are together. Another thing that this practice of mindfulness of body does for us is it begins to show us just how sensitive of an instrument our bodies are you know we especially in um, you know in this culture we're so mental a lot of our um, a lot of a lot of us have jobs that is very are very mental and we're all now like in the world of computers and you know it's like that's like. Almost completely mental, the the uh, mind as it's interacting with the computer. So there's um, a lot of ways in which we're not really very familiar with what the body is experiencing. I know when I first started meditation, you know, the body felt like a, a foreign country. You know, it wasn't a place I was very familiar with at all. And I remember on one meditation retreat, um, um, my teacher asked me, "So, what are the feelings?" And I went off talking about, you know, some other thing like. You know, what I was thinking about and, you know, what, what my opinions about it were. He's like, no, no, what, what are the, what, what is, what is the experience? I can't remember. He asked me three different questions. And it wasn't until he finally said, What is the body feeling? And it's like, Oh, you know, I get what he's asking now. And I just like, I have no idea what the body is feeling. I have no idea. Um, so it really was a, a, an ex- exploration for me to begin to explore and feel into the body. You know, when we're we're thinking thoughts, when we're lost in a world of thought, our mind creates and constructs a world. It's very potent, the way our minds do that. Now, our mind constructs that world. It's like we check out of our bodies. You know, that when we're lost in a world of thinking about the past or the future, often we are not at all connected with what's actually going on here and now in our bodies. So this um, practice of mindfulness of body begins to acquaint us with this terrain, this, this terrain of body experience. And we discover actually that our body experience is a huge source of information for us. It's really a very sensitive instrument that collects information that's very valuable for us to be able to respond to in a skillful way. So this practice of mindfulness of the body begins to acquaint us with this instrument and learn how to understand what it's saying in its language. Another benefit of mindfulness of the body is um, that it begins to really help us recognize what's the difference between Bodily experience and mental experience. This is uh, a t- terrain that I also found was it's very conflated in my experience. That there were um, you know, bodily experiences and mental experiences happening together. And there's such a tight feedback loop between mind and body that there can be something of a confusion of what body is and what mind is. And so this exploration, again, begins to help us to distinguish what our actual bodily experience is and what our relationship is to that experience. And this relationship, our relationship, whether we like it, whether we don't like it, whether we want to fix it or change it, whether we have views and opinions about it, whether we have perceptions, concepts, ideas about it, that's all in the the terrain of our minds. And the um, all of that perspective of our relationship to our physical experience, that's actually where our struggles lie. Not so much in whether our actual physical experience is what we like or don't like, but in how we relate to it. It's the actual relationship where a lot of our um, challenge, our stress, our suffering, our struggles are born. And so beginning to distinguish between what body is and what mind is helps us to see and understand how our mind is contributing to our struggles. And that's a huge, that's a huge insight because it begins to give us this notion that it's not so much what's happening, whether it's what's happening in the world or what's happening in my body. It's not so much about what's actually, you know, the actual events of what's going on, but it's my mind's relationship to it that's the most important piece. And that's a key piece of the Buddha's turn of perspective, of shift of perspective. It's not so much about what's happening. It's about our relationship to it. And so the mindfulness of the body begins to really give us some direct understanding of that wisdom. We see our experience of body sensation, and we begin to recognize, well, there's the body sensation, and there's my ideas about it. And the body sensation itself is, well, it's what it is. It's My ideas about it where I'm getting wrapped up. And so can we learn to relate to those ideas in a new way. So in the um, Sutta, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the first foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha spends a lot of his uh, instruction time on this first foundation. He offers a lot of practices. The first and fourth foundations are where he offers the most practices. He offers six different meditation practices around the body. And I'm not gonna have time to talk about them all today. I'm gonna pick one and a half. <laughs> I'll explore a little bit of, of one and a half of these and then hope to have some time for uh, discussion. So he, he I'll, I'll mention them all though. So the first one is the breath. That the breath being an experience in the body. Then he encourages us to explore our posture. Are we standing? You know, being aware when we're standing. You know. That instruction is so simple. You know, one knows when standing that they're standing. One knows when they're walking that they're walking. One knows when they're sitting that they're sitting. One knows when they're lying down that they're lying down. Very simple instructions. And I actually like the simplicity uh, that he's encouraging us with. And, um, you know, one... Meditation teacher, uh, of Joseph Goldstein's, I think, er, one of Joseph Goldstein's earliest meditation teachers, uh, Munindraji, offered the instruction, you know, just keep it really simple. He said, sit and know that you're sitting and all of the Dharma will reveal itself to you. You It can be that simple. The simplicity of just sitting and knowing you're sitting will allow the understanding of body and mind to reveal itself to you. Will allow the understanding of how our reactivity contributes to our struggles to reveal itself to you. So the simplicity of these teachings. So breath, posture, and then a teaching that's sometimes called clear comprehension, which... I think of as you know it's the Buddha's instructions on daily life practice he he offers um he says well when you're when you're walking someplace, know that you're walking someplace you know when you're uh, speaking, know that you're speaking when you 're silent, know that you're being silent when you're extending and bending your arms, know that you're extending and bending your arms when you um You know, are urinating and defecating, know that you're urinating and defecating. It gets right in there, you know, (laughs) into just the messiness of our daily lives. Just know what's happening. Know what's happening as it's happening. So that's clear comprehension. And then he offers um, a few more practices on actually exploring the body itself, which, you know, one of them is to explore. And this I think of as more of a reflective practice, this one, which is exploring the parts of the body So the hair, it's recommended that you break down and know, you know, this body is composed of the hair, the head hairs, the body hairs. It's composed of um, the nails and teeth. It's composed of the skin. And it kind of goes from the outside in, and I think that's how you would remember it. It's like head hair, body hair, teeth, uh, nails, um, skin, um, muscle, sinew, uh, bone, um, uh, bodily fluids, you know, so just breaking down all the parts of your body and just reflecting in your mind that this is what your body is made of, you know, it's kind of, you know, exposing the fact that, you know, it's not like, I think part of that, part of the, uh, this practice is meant to kind of balance out our, um, enchantment that we have around our bodies and the bodies of others, you know, that, uh, um, we see them, and as Joseph Goldstein says, you know, he he uh, he went he went and had a some kind of internal diagnosis thing where he could be awake and seeing. I think it was maybe a colonoscopy or something, and he could see inside of his body. And you know, he was looking at the camera and looking inside. And he's like, you know, that's just not me. You know, I don't identify with the inside of my colon very much. But <laughs> you know, wrap it all up in skin. That's me, you know. So, so, you know, we kind of have this idea of, what, of who we are as bodies. And this practice, you know, meant to actually take us in and, and think about, reflect on, that we're made up of intestines and, and uh, hearts and lungs and spleens and kidneys and livers. And, and you know, another, another teacher uh, said, you know, if we actually look at what we like about our bodies, you know, what, we, what we're enchanted with. You know, there's the hair. We're often enchanted with the hair and the, the skin and, the, you know, the teeth. And, you know, most of what we're enchanted with is the already dead bits. You know, the skin, the surface of the skin is already sloughing off. And, you know, the hair is not alive. It's, so, you know, so it's just kind of a, a reframing a little bit of the, the enchantment, trying to break our enchantment around the body, this teaching. Then there's an element's meditation, which is looking at our body from yet a different perspective. And that's one of the ones I'm going to explore a little bit more detail today. So I won't go into that one so much right now. And then the, the sixth practice is a reflection on death. And in this one, he's encouraging us to, uh, in, in the suttas, he was encouraging people at the time to reflect on what it might be if they were to sit at a charnel ground. And at a charnel ground, they basically, you know, there were these open graves. And they threw bodies into these open graves. And, you know, the, the bodies decomposed. And so if you sit at the charnel ground, you watch the bodies decomposing. And he was encouraging people to reflect on the fact that this, too, will happen to me. You know, this is, this is in my future. This is in the future of this body. We could put it less personally, I mean like, this is in the future of this body. This body is not immune from this process of decay, so to reflect on that also as an aspect of this practice. now, I personally have not done much in the way of body parts or death contemplations, only a very small amount um, and you know the the um, the suttas actually often offer a caution about some of these—that you know they may not be the best practices for everybody. And this brings me to also why so many practices—you know, six different practices around the body. Partly, some of these are kind of divided by um, different activities that we might do, so, you know, some of them are more focused on the meditative side and some of them more on the daily practice side, so the Buddha's offering practices that carry us through meditation and daily life. And then, um, you know, some of the other ones are, I mean, some of them are, I think, also that he was very cognizant of the fact that different people had different strengths, different people had different minds, and different practices would be helpful for different people. And so it's not necessarily that we have to all learn all of these practices. In fact, in the suttas, there's a a whole instruction outside of this teaching about the four foundations of mindfulness. There's a whole discourse that the Buddha gave around mindfulness of breathing that he said, you know, this one practice, this is really all you need to free your mind to find that true happiness. This one practice will take you through everything you need to understand. So he's not saying that we all have to learn all of them, but he, I think, does recommend, you know, for some people, he's like, okay, well, it sounds like you may need to do a little bit of this kind of practice, you know, so why don't you look at that? So the, um, the, the variety of practices, I think, doesn't necessarily mean that we all need to engage in all of them. And as I said, there's one cautionary tale in the suttas about, in particular, the... the, um, Shoot, I can't remember whether it's the body parts or the... I think it might be the body parts meditation. It's either the body parts or the death contemplation that um, the Buddha taught a bunch of monks this practice. And um, then he went off for three months to meditate himself. And when he came back, he had found out that about half the monks had killed themselves. And um, Ananda, his attendant, you know, he's uh, had been there. And uh, the, the Buddha says, you know, what's going on here, you know? And, and the, the Ananda said, you know... The, the half of these monks killed themselves. Don't you think it might be a good idea to teach them mindfulness of breathing? <laughs> so, so I, I think this is. A, I mean, to me, this kind of of discourse really. Um. It, you know, it's it it really points to me to the kind of that 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 the suttas don't just make the Buddha look like he was, you know. Had the right answer all the time um. <laughs> um, so you know to to uh, you know to point to his humanity essentially now the 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 commentaries stand on their head to make it appear that he did know what he was doing, but um, you know it 's like you know the fact that that kind of of discourse is in the suttas gives me some actual degree of confidence that. Some of this actually happened, you know. I don't think people would have made that one up, you know, to go into the the, the suttas, You know, that might have happened. How did they die? This really? No, they killed themselves. By, by how long? I have an oh, probably killed themselves by, you know, by knife. a knife. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, I mean, just just the 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 part of the understanding is. Um, I mean, part of the, the way the Sutta is described is that um, they were so revolted by their bodies that they just couldn't stand it anymore and took their lives. Yes, yes, it was aversion. Well, so so again, you know, this is this is this is pointing to the fact that some of these practices may not be the best for like aversive minds probably not a good practice for them. Um, and, you know, so the, just the fact that these practices can be skewed, I think that's another another um, learning from this teaching, that, you know, certain practices, you know, first of all, may not be so good for everybody, but also can be misinterpreted, misunderstood. Now, the the, the commentaries say something like, well, these people had done so many horrible things. They were they were like, I don't know what they did. The, 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 the teaching is something like they were already um, destined to kill themselves. And so that's why they killed themselves. I mean, it's just some, you know, silly... I, I, I don't think the commentary... Like I said, the commentary tries to stand on its head to excuse or say why it wouldn't have mattered whether the Buddha had taught the mindfulness of breathing or the contemplations on the body, the body parts. Um, so yes, the, 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 the suttas themselves offer some cautions about some of these practices. And I myself, you know, being a particularly aversive type, it doesn't really seem appropriate for me to go there. So um, I have done quite a bit of practice with the others, with breath, with posture, with clear comprehension, and with elements. And so those are the ones that I can share more of my own experience about. Um, I'd like to just stop there. I mean, I, I did say I'd go into um, into elements a little bit more, but I just want to just see if there's any comments, questions, anything more. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I'd like to follow up a little bit on this last bit of you can take something too far or the right kind of person maybe is going to be harmed and not mm-hmm. benefited from mm-hmm. it I mean it seems to me that if you take buddhism to the extreme you never cultivate anything right if you just if i were to just sit here and meditate and never move i would probably be dead in a week because i would die of dehydration mm-hmm. at some point I'm going to notice that I'm thirsty and not just notice it but do something yes. about
1: it. Uh-huh.
0: and in doing something about it in our world I have to rely on somebody else I have to have expectations of somebody else if I just go turn on the tap I have to have trust that what comes out of that tap isn't poison that it's not going to make mm-hmm. me s- sick or kill me faster you know so immediately right now I'm trusting somebody and, and you can carry that further. I, you know, I'm going to get hungry. I need to get food. I need to trust that the food I buy... So it seems to me there is a reasonable level of expectation you have to have of other people, of living in a cooperation in a society. Or you, you can just plan to be gone in a week, <laughs> right? Just plan to be dead in a week. But it's that fine line of how much reason what's a reasonable level of expectation to have of people and it seems like a lot of these teachings and practices are geared for people who have too much they've over expected from people they're in connection with in their world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but is there such a thing as a person who's under expected who doesn't expect enough who Expect so little that they don't cultivate anything. Oh, uh, you know, classic would be a very depressed person mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. doesn't get out of bed, doesn't do anything, doesn't get a job, doesn't mm-hmm, have relationships mm-hmm. with people. Isn't there a danger of that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the Buddha, the Buddha pointed to. He said that there, you know, the, um, the again the the path that he described, the wisdom that he offered, he called the middle path, the middle teaching, and in his day there were people who. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily put it in the same frame of underexpecting, but kind of in that same thing of, you know, really having the perspective of um, um, not taking care of the body and, in fact, um, denigrating the body. You know, the, the, the practices of... Um, um, can't remember their, their name, but the, the practices of um, starving yourself, of, of eating, and like the Buddha practiced some of these practices of, you know, austerities, austerities yeah, the auster, the austerity practices of not, of, of like, he got to the point where he ate one grain of, of rice a week, and um, um, and he flagellated himself and you know so the, the kind of denigration of the body and that was seen at one point as a way to free the mind you know if you if you denigrate the body enough then the 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 mind will free itself from the body and so you know he said that's not the way I mean, we need to take care of our bodies we need to eat properly we need to um, um, rest. We need to clothe ourselves. We need to have medicine. We need all of that. We need to take care of the body because a healthy body will allow us to um, participate in freeing our minds. So he, he, he brought it in from that perspective. And then he also said, and there's too much. There's the side where we can indulge in our bodies, indulge in sense pleasure. And that will take us away from that middle ground as well. So that's, that would be kind of on the side of over uh, you know, too much attachment. You know, so it's kind of like the too much attachment is the, the sense pleasure. The, the aversive side or the under attachment is the austerity side. And he, he said, you know, it needs to be somewhere in the middle. So his, his teachings emphasize, um, you know, take care of the body, take care of um, your relationships with people. That's the other piece. You know, you, you pointed to the trust area he's got a whole training on trusting and um, being trustable, you know, that, that essentially we can only count on ourselves to be trustable. We can't really rely on somebody else being trustable. I mean, we have structures in place in this country that help us to rely on others. But the, you know, the, the only place we can really rely on, people behaving ethically. I mean, we can only do the best that we can. To behave ethically, and so the Buddha really encourages that ethical conduct, and that creates this framework of trust in which we can move on. So that that that's a part of his eightfold path. This notion of ethical conduct, behaving in a trustable way. So you know we can't really demand that others do that, um, but we can ourselves engage in that and. Um, you know explore our world from that perspective. So that's a, that's a, a little bit in that direction. And there's a big that's a big topic. So but does that does that offer a little bit for you? Yeah. Yeah. Starting. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyone, anyone else? Yeah. I'm just wondering, I heard you say that you're an aversive type. Mm-hmm. How would one know what type one is? <laughs> yeah. um, so that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question. This is a kind of a little off the topic of mindfulness of body, but that's okay. I'll, I'll, um, I'll go there since it came up. Um, so the, the, there's a teaching on, you know, we might call it the, the uh, Theravadan teaching on personality types. I wouldn't say it's the Buddhist teaching on personality types because it's found in the commentaries, the Theravada commentaries. So it's more in the Theravada tradition. And there are um, six personality types that they offer, but they're all basically variations on having greed as a kind of underlying motivation, having aversion as an underlying motivation, or having delusion as an underlying motivation. So the... the, um, uh, you know, how do you orient to the world? Do you typically um, orient to, um, you know, not liking things, wanting to get rid of things, wanting to fix, control, or do you typically orient and gravitate towards, oh, I like that, let me have more of that, or are, is there a gravitation towards confusion and not connect, not connecting with what's actually happening? And so, in terms of how to know which type you are, um, a couple of different ev- explorations, a kind of famous one that Jack Hornfield offers is just imagine walking into a new place or sometime when you walk into a new place for the first time what does your attention gravitate to does it gravitate to oh I like the way this room feels it's nice it's very simple I like the simplicity of this room and the the the, the you know, the, the layout feels pretty good. You know, so that kind of, do you gravitate towards what you like? If you gravitate towards what you like, you might be uh, a greed type. If you instead gravitate towards, wow, those chairs are kind of ugly, and I <laughs> don't have enough art in here, you know. I, you know, I really, and what a boring colored carpet, you know. If that's the way your mind goes when you first walk into a room, is what it doesn't like, probably an aversive type. If you walk into a room for the first time and are kind of confused, like what's going on here, and are not noticing, you know, then you're probably um, more. You, you tend to meet your experience from that perspective of delusion more, and so it's more kind of what's your initial orientation to experience. That would be more. That would be more probably possibly in the delusion area, you know, it's just like not really connecting with what's happening. Um, so that's that, another, another way to explore it. And this really gave me the, the sense is at one point, one of my teachers said, you know, just doing kind of a guided meditation, just like what's the, just without any idea or agenda for uh, where your attention will land, just right now, and you can play with this right now, you know, what's the most obvious thing in your experience? Just what's the most obvious physical experience? and then let go of that one, and now, where's the next place the attention lands? And then do it again, you know, just kind of just allow your attention to pick up on the next obvious thing. <coughs> For me, when I first did that, I was like, well, you know, because he was saying, don't choose which way, and it's like, um, you know, don't have any agenda about which way, and it's like, well, I didn't feel like I had an agenda but every single thing my attention landed on was unpleasant. Oh. <laughs> and so it's like obviously there is some, I mean it's, it's, clear, it's clear that there's not only unpleasant experience in my experience and so there was some kind of a filter working. And that, the, that perspective is that kind of orientation. And So how many of you experienced, uh-huh, what did you? no, no there's no, one is not better than the other it's It's simply just our orientation um, you know that and but but knowing what our orientation is can help us you know that that knowing I tend to be drawn towards unpleasant, um, I can kind of counteract that by recognizing okay and so there's the sound of the jackhammer, and there's. The breathing. <laughs> you know, so we can kind of expand our perspective a little bit. If we find we're drawn towards pleasant experience, then you know probably we're we're motivated by that that desire to hold on, you know, so that we we can know we, we learn something about our minds by knowing what perspective we have. And there also there's under kind of an understanding that each perspective, each personality type has its has its own transformation. So, the perspective of aversion, when transformed by wisdom, has a wise discernment as its other side, because it clearly sees, you know, what's here and what's not here. Greed has as its um, flip side the um, uh, the capacity for love, you know, the the open heart, the connectedness. Because that that move towards uh, wanting to have things is a, is a movement towards connection, and so as we um, open our hearts around the greedy movement, it supports more of a sense of connectedness with experience, of love, of meta and then the delusion side, that that part of you know kind of being confused and not connected, when that is infused with wisdom, it brings more of a sense of balance of mind, of being, of being able to be connected but not reactive. So the, the, each one is seen to have its positive aspects that are transformed. into. Thank you. <coughs> Will you do a talk on those sometime? Sure. Let me make a note. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So the question is, the question is, could you have all of the those different perspectives depending on um, the situation or the phase of your life? Absolutely. I mean, it. it, um, For me, in fact, one thing I've seen that as I've explored the aversion and the aversion has fallen away. There's more greed popping up. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> so there's not so much things I don't like It's more like, ooh, I like that. Ooh, I like that. It's like, okay. <laughs> you know, so so it does it does different parts of our lives. It's fluid, it's definitely fluid. And, you know, different situations, as you pointed out, may bring one or the other up. Um, and so it's you know, we all have all three. We absolutely all have all three. It's just kind of like helpful to understand what our, um, and, and exploring that, you know, in what situations do I tend to be more aversive? What situations do I tend to have more greed? Can help us also, knowledge can help us, you know, that understanding of yeah i'm getting ready to walk into the situation you know maybe we go back to our family of origin and we find a lot of aversion you know it's like okay i'm getting ready to go back into my family of origin maybe i really need to be attentive to how i might be reactive in that aversive way versus okay now i'm getting ready to go out to have a uh, a nice dinner and you know why well, maybe see that i have a pattern of um, of overeating you know it's like i like the food so much you know it's like I, I order too much food, and okay, maybe I need to pay attention to that aspect of, 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 of desire in that situation. So knowing that helps us to navigate our experience. So um, I guess I'll go into some of the more details Next time. <laughs> um, I would like to talk about, a little more about breath and elements meditation the next time. I'm, I'm away next week. I'm um, going to be at Spirit Rock Teaching Retreat, but the following week I'll be back. So I'll talk, I'll explore more, in more detail those two uh, areas. Um, they're both very, very helpful meditation practices. So um, next week there will be someone here, so... I I always have a substitute when I'm not here, so I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank Thank you.